Hey, welcome to Piecing It All Together. Yes, welcome. I'm Randy Woodley. I'm Bo Sanders. And it is good to be together today. Together again. Yeah. Yeah. You wouldn't know this, but that's actually the name of a song from like the 60s by Buck Owens. (laughs) Together again. Man, you always always get me with those pop cultural references. I miss my cues all the time. I don't know. Were they even calling it pop back then? I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. Was that was that corporate rock back then? Is that what they called it? No, no. This was Buck Owens, which would have been country. (laughs) Oh, interesting. No, then I would have no frame of reference for it. I have less than zero knowledge about uh, country. By the way, I've been listening to an interesting uh, series while I'm on my bike about the history of music, history of rock and roll. And uh, I listened to the country, the couple episodes about country music. It was literally, I mean, an education because I knew nothing. It was fascinating. Well, yeah, it is pretty fascinating. I grew up listening to all that, you know, so Uh my parents made from the South. But it really, I mean, there's this through line, you know, uh, from blues and country to rock and roll and you can you know pick up all sides of that the the rockabilly you know elvis presley and you know uh blues before that um um uh uh, black folks from you know the delta uh Mm -hmm. coming up Mm -hmm. and uh yeah so there's there's all these mixes come together but one of the most interesting for me is uh the contribution that native americans have made with our both traditional and uh, different types of music. So um, if if you haven't seen the documentary called Rumble, uh, how Native Americans gave us the rock and roll or something like that. I can't remember the subtitle, but man, it is excellent. It is excellent. Because I've always, you know, as I've heard different traditional sounds and things, I've thought, oh, that's kind of like, you know, uh, stomping music is kind of like blues. It's kind of got those same tones in it. And mm. and so what you find out is that all these great people that you've heard of and some you haven't heard of um, were great contributors um, and, and innovators in music throughout the ages. And uh, a lot of them were Native American. Wow. All right. I'll look for that. So eventually today, we're going to talk about intersectionality. That's going to be a fun conversation. But first, really- we... Isn't that a band word? Ba- is it banned? Oh, it's I think well, this one of the words has been banned by some of the like seminaries, conservative <laughs> seminaries. It's yeah. definitely a contentious word, and that's what we're going to talk Maybe about. Maybe the Republican Party. I think it's banned from the Republican Party as that well. Would, yeah. That would not surprise me, but I think it's why we have to talk about it. But before that, we need to acknowledge that it has been a while since you, the listener, have gotten an episode from us. So there's been a couple re- that we just released, but but we've been kind of holding on to those um, just because there's so much going on in our lives, and um, there's been you know some some terrible things that have happened. Both of my parents uh, passed on this summer. Um, you know I've had uh, children going through some pretty uh, serious um, turmoil and things, and so yeah, so it's good to get back in the saddle, as they say. Yeah, and uh, uh, and then you've had some stuff going on too, right, Bill? 
Yeah, it's been uh, sort of a whirlwind behind the scenes over here. Two of the interesting things that are happening is, uh, so it turns out that my dream of a PhD has come to an end. I timed out of writing my dissertation. I didn't get it done in time. But right now, what I'm considering is they are offering to me to switch over to a doctor of ministry. Uh, and I just have to take uh, two doctoral seminars, which I would be very interested to do. And then I would get to do my same research. I would just format it oh. differently. Instead of writing a dissertation, I actually have to do a doctoral uh, project. But my project would actually be an on-the-ground um, sort of examination of anti-racist work in specifically in the light of what's been going on over the last five years. And so it would allow me to continue to utilize the, all that research that I did, um, right. but, just, but just format it differently into what I think ultimately would be a much more usable uh, project. And I just have to swallow yeah. my, I just have to swallow my pride a little bit and say goodbye and mourn that uh, unfortunately with life the way it is, I just, I didn't finish the PhD in time. And so I timed out of the program. So I'm sort of sad. Yeah. And you know, you're not alone in that. I mean, like actually the greater percentage of people who are what they call ABD for yep. people listening uh, all but dissertation uh, the majority never finished the PhD. And I did not know that. Life gets in the way. Yeah. And so, yeah, I think if you can salvage that, that would be yeah. wonderful, a great contribution to, you know, to not just academia, but to the world, if you can uh, finish your project. So, yeah, it's taken me a while to wrap my head around the, you know, the end of one project and, you know, a partial dissertation. But to actually get a vision for a new project, it's taken me a long time to do some soul searching and some real thinking about what I wanted to do and what direction I wanted to go. But I think I've got it. I think I'm inspired again. So, yeah, um, that's exciting. The letters aren't going to make a difference in uh, how intelligent you are. So, yeah. And I thank you for always reminding me of that. I'll always remember a conversation when I first got down to Claremont. Um, I called you and told you about like what, what the doctoral program was like. And I remember you really cautioning me about uh, judging intelligence based on certain criteria. And so I've, I've always thanked you for that heads up uh, to not, to not um, too narrowly define intelligence. Huh. Okay. <laughs> you don't remember it, do you? <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> it's fine. But you know, the other thing that's been going on, and this is something I wanted to bring up with you is, uh, I'll be honest, I really thought that getting vaccinated would be a silver bullet. It would fix a lot of things. But Randy, I have to admit, it has actually made my life more complicated. Because... Really? Yeah. So pre-vaccine, the answer was always no. You want to get coffee? No. Can I come to visit? No. Right. Everything is super simple. Can, can, as a congregation, can we meet uh, at the church building? No. Everything was just super clear. Even though it was frustrating, at least it was 
you know, determined. Getting vaccinated has made things supremely complicated because let's say, for instance, if we meet, you know, as a large group, not only do we have to take all of these precautions and do background checks and this and that and this and that, but we also have to be hybrid and also online everything we do for those who aren't vaccinated yet or who aren't comfortable gathering in large groups. And so we've just basically doubled our work. And so every new offer that comes up, we have to think, is this something we want to do? And if we did decide to do it, what would that look like logistically? It's actually complicated my life so much. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah. I mean, it's complicated ours just a bit, but we're we're still pretty... I would say we're we're uh, semi cloistered back here. We're mm-hmm. um, we don't have contact with many people, and those we do, we choose. So, um, yeah, and uh, you know, so for us, it hasn't been a big deal. But you know, we're not having public events every week like you are. Mm-hmm. And then on a personal note, I've been going through this weird thing. I think everybody's zoomed out, right? Everyone's so tired of Zoom meetings and online stuff and screens. I have run into this weird thing where I just can't seem to bring myself to stare at the screen for one more second. So <laughs> when, it comes to, <laughs> when it comes to things like, whether it's social media or even editing the audio of the podcast, I just don't want to look at a screen any more in a day than I absolutely have to. I'm so sick of screen time. Yeah. Well, I, I guess um, maybe there's a cure for that somehow. I don't know what it is, but uh, it's it's not going to be by not looking at screen time because that's what we live on now. I know, I know. So I've been trying to you know wrap my head around that and, and sort of I, don't, I haven't myself. been told about any old Indian medicines or anything that would cure that, but uh, <laughs> I'll look in my medicine garden and see what I got. All right. That'd be, that'd be great. <laughs> so listeners, we do want to say thank you for your ongoing support, uh, both financially on Patreon. We're so grateful for people continuing to support uh, what we do here, but also for those who have reached out and said, Hey, what's going on with the podcast? You know, are we getting a new episode soon? And so we're really, really grateful. Thank you uh, for your patience and for your understanding and for your ongoing support. Yeah, I was like, you know, in the last two weeks, I've had four people say to me, are you guys on a, are you and Bo on a hiatus? And I'm like, four people? Like the first one, I was like, okay, there's that one listener that you see, you know, coincidence, four people. And I'm like, Bo, do we have more than four people listening to our podcast? That's incredible. <laughs> it is incredible. I'm always surprised with, when somebody brings it up in conversation or references it. And I'm, it makes me so happy because obviously you and I talk without recording. And I love that. But the opportunity to record and then share that with other people and bring them into the conversation I just love, you know, in expanding it and, and, and having other people have access to it. Absolutely. And folks, we do want to hear from you. We want you to be a part of this conversation. This isn't uh, just for us. This is uh, so that you can participate as well. So make sure you write us. Um, and uh, what's that email address, Bo? Connect at piecingitalltogether.com. Yeah, that's P-E-A-C-I-N-G. 
And then I think they can get a hold of us on the uh, on the website as well. Is that right? Yeah, there's a link there. People can post right the comments right under the in the show notes. They can post right there on each episode, and uh, or they can email us. And we also have a Facebook page that um, usually what happens is we'll post an episode there, and then it takes people a couple of days to listen, and then the conversation fires up. So yeah, and that's um, that's for people who donate at least a dollar a year. Is that right? Something like that. Yeah. Well, we have, we do have a Patreon page. Uh, Yeah. That's another way people can connect with us, but on the Facebook page, it's just for anybody, any listener at all. Hey, Randy, can I talk to you a little bit about this intersectionality thing? Yeah, let's, let's talk about that. What got me thinking about this is I, uh, in doing the, my doctoral research, trying to figure out if I wanted to do this new project. I've been reading a lot of great stuff. And so much of it uh, makes me think about conversations you and I've had. But recently I found this one called The Trouble with Intersectional Identities by Canton. It's either Weiner or Viner. I don't know how to pronounce it. But this author has an interesting take that has really made me, it's stuck with me. You know, a lot of stuff I read, two days later, I couldn't tell you about it. But I keep coming back to this article because I think that the proposal this person makes is worth considering. So here's how I want to present it to you. I think direction really matters. So when something starts at the grassroots level or on the street, say through advocacy, uh, and it makes its way up to the popular use, it makes into the media or, you know, uh, into the classroom, that's an interesting direction when something makes its way from the grassroots level sort of up into popular usage. I think that's very different than things that start in the high-minded academy, and then trickle down into common usage. So let me tell you why I think the direction matters. Things that trickle down, by the time they get into popular usage, and I would put identity politics in this, I would put critical race theory in this, um, by the time they get into popular usage, they are often so diluted that sometimes they don't hold together very well. And their popular usage is different enough from the original idea that you actually have to explain like, okay, well, that's not what that meant originally. And I'm not a purist by any means, but Mm -hmm. the distinction is the way that it gets used in Twitter or, you know, Fox news or whatever, isn't in its purest form, what it originally meant it has trickled down and gotten diluted and the way people are using it presently um, has a little bit different of a tone. And because of that migration and change, it has holes in it. And it's often the holes that draw the critique or the criticism of its opponents. Okay. So I think direct matters if it trickles down versus something that makes its way up from the grassroots by the time it makes its way into popular culture and uh, common usage, often those who critique it or who want to resist it 
they I'm figuring out are not acting in good faith. They're not even giving it an honest hearing. They come with their preconceived objections to it. They've not taken the time to really understand it at all. They just know the exceptions or the extremes and they object to that. And you can't give their argument a lot of validity because they're not acting in good faith. So I'll give you a, for instance, Black Lives Matter, people who object to that and say all lives matter haven't even taken the time to hear what the slogan means, right? They're immediately on the defensive. And so when you respond thinking, oh, I'm going to try maybe and help this person out and say, right, but you can't say all lives matter unless black lives matter, but they're not really listening anyway, because they're not acting in good faith versus something like intersectionality. This is why I wanted to bring this up today. When it makes its way, say, into the high school classroom, and so you have college freshmen coming in, the way that they're talking about intersectional identities is actually different enough from the, the actual idea of intersectionality. It has migrated and changed enough that they're not actually talking about the same thing. And that's not because they're acting in bad faith. They're not being cynical or confrontational. They actually have just adopted it in a way that has, they've personalized it and made it so much about their own personal identity that they're no longer doing what intersectionality originally did, which was to analyze the systems and structures of both oppression and privilege in a way that brought about change, they have adopted it, and I would say adapted it, to their personal sort of identity in a way that it actually takes away the power and the sting of the critical analysis of these systems and structures. So it's okay. actually really let unhelpful. Let me ask a question. Yeah. So. Do you think this has always been the case or is just the case lately? Because what I'm wondering is that you can't, there's sort of no social movement that can occur right now that doesn't immediately become polarized politically. It's a great point. I don't know that that's always been the, uh, and maybe that, that, that other viewpoint, the uncritical mm -hmm. uh, that misunderstands the concept viewpoint has probably always been there, but now, you know, people like Trump have crawled out from under a rock mm -hmm. and they've given it some air, right? To quote Joe Biden yesterday. Um, and, uh, and, and did you see the speech, by the way? I mean, it's the first time an American president has called out white supremacy no. uh, and talked about it being in this country since the beginning and, and connecting it to Charlottesville, January 6th uh, insurrection and basically blaming it on uh, Trump, he didn't mention his name, but everybody knew who he's talking about. So, um, so in that sense, that giving air to that uh, says that, okay, even though it's always been there and it's been kind of hiding in the shadows, now all of a sudden it has air and it can breathe and it's, it gets bigger and inflates. And so now you have more people saying, you know, no, that's bad. And they don't critically examine it. They've always been there. Uh, or is it just something in this climate that's 
Yeah. So where's this at? Yeah. I think that's a really great point is yes. That stuff has always been there. I mean, this pattern has always been the case, but I do think that in our current climate, both our polarized politics and our social media, that everything is turned up and amplified and agitated and inflamed and is actually so, um, so that the, this thing we're talking about, how things change or adapt or get, you know, um, diluted over time as they come into popular usage is so intensified right now that yes, I think the phenomenon has always been the case. I think that's always, that thing's always been true. It's just that now everything is sped up and made louder and intensified and made confrontational. Yeah. And, and I don't think that, I think the root of that again is white supremacy. That's the root at the binary choice. That's the root at the, the critique, because if you think about it, whether it's defund the police, black lives matter, intersectionality, critical race theory, all the people on the other side are basically the majority white saying we don't want these things to change. We want things the way they were before. And before is when white people were privileged, right? Wow. Okay. (laughs) That's an interesting and terrifying proposal. So let's, let's, let me just let this soak in for a second. So the resistance to any of these concepts that we're seeing are rooted immediately in, if we went down that road, it would call for change and we're going to resist that change. Exactly. And, And it's not just resist that change. It's because we want to make America great again, right? is we want America to go back to what it was, which is a place that fostered white supremacy as normal. Oh, boy. I did not know our conversation was going to go this direction. You know, there are two concepts that I think about a lot with this, and I don't even think you and I have talked about them. I read a book one time called The Way We Never Were or Remembering the Way We Never Were uh, about this phenomenon of this imagined past of, you know, like people joke about beaver cleaver and um, the the mythical norm, I call it. Yeah, yeah. So I do think that there's something to that. And this whole notion of uh, a social imaginary about an imagined past that was more pristine or whatever, however you want to talk about that. Um, and people long for that. And here's, so here's where I, why I'm bringing this up. I'm trying to give the benefit of the doubt to people. I'm not talking about politicians or media figures, actual people that I know that I'm related to, that I've lived with, I've been friends with who have been seduced by this resistance uh, or, or they, they're trying to be cautious or they're nervous. 
I'm trying to give them the benefit of the doubt that they're not acting in bad faith and fear. But I know that they're being preyed upon by politicians and media figures who are not acting in good faith and are being cynical and deceitful and are, you know, fueling the fires of fear and white supremacy. Not a new problem, right? No. I mean, we have this mythical uh, norm or this, what do you call it, imaginary? Yeah, yeah. um, National imaginary. Um, The first 10 presidents were slave owners. Every president past Lincoln were pro-slavery. Even Lincoln, when he changed his position and became uh, the the really the first solid uh, um, uh, uh, anti-slavery president, his goal was to colonize black people in the Bahamas, not to have them in America. They wanted they all wanted a white America, right? Mm-hmm. And so um, this and, and so why you know I, I don't think Joe Biden is a great speech deliverer. He's not, you know, uh, John Kennedy or some of the other ones who have who have sort of stood out that people remember their speeches. But what he said yesterday was that there is a through line from slavery all the way up to the January 6th insurrection, all the way up to the to the the current un-American, he called it, um, stance of the Republican Party of white supremacy. That is fascinating. I've got to go listen to the thing. President, even Obama couldn't say that because Obama had to tread lightly sure. as the first black president. But Biden came out and said it. And that's the first American president to ever do that. I think it was a historic day yesterday to call out white supremacy as the problem in the country. And he talked about the number one threat of violence in our country right now is white supremacist terrorists. No way. He said that into a microphone. Wow. Yeah. That's actually amazing. He spoke from the MLK Memorial yesterday. Oh, wow. All right. I'm going to go check this out. Back to intersectionality. So when these freshmen in college are coming in, and obviously they are the most racially diverse, uh, you know, generation of college entries uh, that we have ever had in this country. But my fear is that because they are so much into the individual identities that they have absorbed through both identity politics and now intersectionality, one of the things that's happening and the reason this article has stuck with me so much is that they've made it about them and sort of their social location instead of the powerful potential that this critical analysis does of examining these systems and structures, these much bigger forms that need to be critiqued. And so there's actually something dangerous or impotent at some level about everyone personalizing their own social location and intersectional identities that takes the the power away from critiquing and examining these larger structures that affect us all. 
Hmm. So, so can you give me an example of what that would look like? Yeah. So if this, if intersectionality is originally rooted, right, in a way that allows for critical examination of, let's say, working class um, life and pay structure, wage injustice. Mm-hmm. But the way that it's being employed currently is about their own intersectional identities as in race, gender, sexuality, religious tradition, whatever it is. But that is happening, unfortunately, at the expense of the criticism of stagnant wages and working class existence. We're not making it up to addressing at a systemic level working class issues we that's totally been lost because now it's about individual identities right so and this is why um actually unions are so important i come from a you know a a long history of uh union organizers um my grandfather was one of the uh, people who brought the united mine workers down into the strip pits of central alabama oh wow um but but unions are one device that actually uh, meet this intersectionality goal. They bring people together who normally wouldn't be together. Uh, men, women, black, white, Latino uh, or Latinx, um, you know, uh, Asian, uh, uh, transgender, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. All working people who have this common goal of, hey, we want a better life for ourselves and our children and our families. And so, you know, we are going to um, bind together and uh, try to get something more from corporate America. So, um, yeah, that's a that's a, uh, a great example. Yeah. Uh, let me read for you the end of this article, because I, I think it's saying exactly the sort of thing that you're talking about. Um. So he says, to be clear, I'm not arguing that we should be focusing on those in advantaged social positions just as much as in disadvantaged social positions. Black feminist thought, for example, has powerfully shown that focusing on the margins can teach us a lot about both the margins and the center. And theorizing from the margin has yielded important knowledge in other realms as well. He ends by saying, part of the brilliance and profound discomfort of intersectionality is that it implicates nearly all of us in others' disadvantage. Almost no one is completely advantaged or completely disadvantaged. And addressing inequality while only highlighting disadvantage presents us with only half the picture. Seeing a fuller picture may require us to emphasize intersectionality as a theory of power rather than of one of identity, or at least to recognize that all identities are intersectional. So when we make it too personal and too um, individual, we're losing the power of the collective analysis of looking at our power together. Right. Yeah, no, I, I get that. I think that's that's right. Um, but it's definitely a both and, right? I that, mean, yeah. Uh, and that's we have why to I understand ourselves and who we are in our social uh, uh, milieu and also who we can be together. Um, and that's that why the other part's really difficult for Americans, you know. Mm-hmm. 
That's why I wanted because to talk about direct. Mm-hmm. So say it again. So, yeah, what we're uh, Americans are 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 one of the most individualistic and yeah. competitive peoples, uh, you know, probably ever to live. And so um, it goes against the values that are actually not just taught, but mostly caught, mm-hmm. you know, in our education system and our economic system and our political system, et cetera, et cetera. So um, we're, we're not taught to cooperate. Uh, we're not taught to think of the group as important as ourselves. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the reasons I wanted to talk about this direction is that intersectionality allows us by prioritizing those on the margins or who are decentered, it actually provides a, a critique that brings us back into focusing on the center and vice versa. If we start in the grassroots and listen to how people are actually living in their concrete lived reality on the streets, then we can focus upwards on the systems that are uh, structured above us and vice versa. And so this, but what's not acceptable to me (laughs) is when we are satisfied to locate ourselves socially, right, in our intersectional identities and let that be an end in itself. If it doesn't, if it doesn't organize us into collectives, right, which is identity politics started as a way for people to uh, in, a, in a hyper-specific way, organize themselves in their social location for political change and empowerment. But when it becomes right. a, a self-satisfied individual overlapping identity of intersectionality, that's not enough because that can't be an end in itself. Right. Yeah. So then the the... The, fi- the the end all of this is what would you like someone to do with this? Yes. So the identity politics, or in this case, what we're talking about with intersectionality is to own one's social identity, right? And locate oneself in order to collaborate with those who whether it's in race, class, gender, sexuality, religion, to organize in such a way that we advocate for change and actually bring the needed adjustments to the system as it exists so that for those who are like us and those who are not like us, that we actually address the larger systems, whether that's in wages, whether that's in legislation, legal action, policing, right? So many things to bring about the change that we see as needed. So it's not enough for me to say I'm X, Y, and Z, and that's what makes me unique. But to say, because I'm X, Y, and Z, I will both partner with those who I find myself in alliance, but also to seek out those who are located in a different place in order to partner together as for me, an ally, right. In order to bring about the changes that I'm seeing saying, if, if you see something and it's not right to say, this not only affects me, but affects people who are not like me. 
Exactly. So uh, find people who are different from you and and be yourself. Yeah, partner together accept and become an who you are. Yeah. And accept them for who they are and uh, understand that there are common goals that you can use to work together. And partner with people who are not like you because you're both affected by the same concern, whatever this thing is, right? We were talking about racism, white supremacy, or wage stagnation, whatever it is. But to say that to become an ally of things, not just that impact me, but of things that seemingly don't impact me because I realize that my intersectional identity has to propel me into action and into practices that are bigger than just how it impacts my daily existence. Exactly. And and that's why you have people who um, will fight against like political interest um, that they're told uh, basically a lie about Mm -hmm. against their own self-interest, you know, against uh, aids to poverty, et cetera, even though like West Virginia, let's take, for example, you have a lot of folks who are in uh, poverty there. And, um, but uh, you don't have a representative, a senator, who uh, you have one who protects the corporate uh, interest over the people. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and so, he convinces the people that this is what's good for you, even though it's working against their own self-interest. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so, but you do that by dividing, right. Mm-hmm. And you divide by um, dehumanizing the other people by calling them things like socialist agenda, um, a, uh, a, a society built on uh, um, not built on, you know, rewards, et cetera, but you, you say, no, we don't want a privileged society. We're entitled society, right? So you need to vote with me because we don't want an entitled society. In the meantime, you know, my kids are starving. I can't get a job and there's no help for me, no safety net. But mm-hmm. let's vote against an entitled society because that leads to socialism. Yeah. That kind of yeah. stuff. You're fighting against your own self-interest. Yes. And when we find our identities, say, as a, a white Christian, then that becomes our, a priority for our activity, our action, our voting, uh, because that framework of my own identity is then more powerful than my solidarity with those who are not white Christians but are affected by the same thing for instance, hiring practices and wage stagnation. So the the class concern gets taken down because my identity as a white Christian is elevated. Right. And it ends up, we have a a Southern colloquialism for that. It's called cutting your nose off to spite your face. Yes, I have. My mom used to use that phrase. (laughs) Yes. Okay. Well, I, I think we've given folks something to think about and we, okay. each other something to think about. And, uh, but I just see this playing out all over the U S right now. Agree. This, uh, the very thing we're talking about and in yeah. particular right now with, uh, trying to move this, uh, you know, 
uh, democratic agenda and the, the pressure that's coming against it, you know, with one party completely saying, we're not going to vote for anything you do, basically. Um, and, and all of their constituents saying, okay, that's okay, because we don't want an entitlement society. We don't want socialism. So, um, you know, how, uh, uh, how many people are you willing to let suffer because of not being uh, critical in your examination of what's really happening? So, Yes. Well, good. Listeners, we would love to hear your thoughts or any resources that you're utilizing to address this in your communities. Uh, we would love to hear from you. So until next time, thank you for tuning in. Peace out, everyone. <laughs>